Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending November 12. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you will hear us talking about our experiences of fishing. Mostly not particularly successful, but interesting nonetheless. And uh, Christos Cholkis, the wonderful Christos Cholkis, dropped in to talk about his new book, Seven and a Half. Wonderful. We also have uh, Denise Scott drops by, has a little bit of a chat to us and talks about easy comedy, live comedy coming back to Melbourne. Uh, We also talk about being mistaken for staff members when you're out and about. And Digger on the Down and Dirty segment does a little bit of talkback, taking live calls and also questions uh, from listeners via the text line. Artist Patricia Piccinini joined us ahead of her exhibition, A Miracle Constantly Repeated, which you can catch at Flinders Street Station Ballroom. Have you been blocked in at a car park? We have. And David Hunt spoke about his new Unauthorised History of Australia, Volume 3, Girt Nation. Triple R. I was chatting to my uh, maid of honour the other day. Uh, she was just asking what I wanted to do for my hen's day because we did have it scheduled about a month ago, but then it got cancelled. And I, I think we're just going to go ahead without it. it. Like, we'll just catch up with friends and stuff. Um, but she was like, she was like, you sure you don't want to do anything? I was like, oh, I think we're coming up to Christmas now and then it's going to be the new year. So um, all good. Uh, she said, do you want to do, because uh, I organised her hen's day. Oh, probably, I don't know how long ago it was, over 10 years ago. And she said, do you want to hire a boat? Um, which is what I did for her. She she wanted to go fishing. So it was the first hen's day and I've been on a few. Fishing? I you thought to... you were going to say like a boat on the Yarra where you drink champagne. Right. Not a fishing trip. We went on a fishing trip. So this was, it was probably 15 years ago now. Um, and there were about a dozen of us um, and we just bought an esky full of beers and we went out. I think we went out at um, Port Melbourne. We caught the caught the boat uh, went out. and no one, I, I think she had been fishing uh, a few times, obviously. That's why she wanted to do it, but she just found it nice and relaxing. relaxing. Uh, we were there for four hours on the water. I think one person caught one fish. A friend of ours actually caught one fish. She was so excited. She posed to take a photo kissing the fish and then the fish jumped out of her hand and went back in the ocean. So that was all we got from the whole four hours. It was really just a social, social trip. And I guess... Imagine being that fish. What an amazing life. Yeah. Second chance. Unbelievable. Got a kiss and... Got a kiss. Escaped. (laughs) Escaped. Everything's extra Mm. as far as that fish is concerned. From that moment on. Yeah. It was it was definitely one of the highlights of the trip. It was mm. like because no one had caught anything. We'd been there for a couple of hours. She caught something. And to be fair, I don't think we were really trying. I think a couple of people actually had well, a run. Well, that's, oh, I think it's a lot of effort to go for for not trying. Like mm. I don't really – I get boat sick. Yeah. I don't really like fishing. I, I, I just find it weird that yeah. it, it's a strange activity to do if you're not going to be really into it. Yeah, well, I think it was because she was into it um, and one of her friends were and the rest of us were there supporting her. It was a hen's day, so we okay. all just came. Um, uh, and I have a question. I'm sorry. Yeah, go for it. What does – and I know this – I don't mean to be impertinent because I think there is a legitimate answer here. What is trying to catch a fish? How does that look different to not trying to catch a fish not trying when you've got just- the fishing rod? Oh well, I think not trying is just not even having a, a rod. Um, well, you were yeah, but you were there with the fishing rod. So so when people are like, oh, we didn't catch fish, we weren't trying. Well, you were there, and so yeah. uh, does it look different? Do you need to like reel it up and like check the bait and make sure everything's yeah, going? Yeah, I think you have to be active. So we all did have rods, and we sh- we were shown how to you know 
throw a rod in and and kind of just be watching it and if a little tug then you kind of you pull it in a little bit but not too hard because you don't want to um pull it out and scare them away or whatnot um so I think look for the first half hour when we were getting taught what to do we were but then they were just hanging off the boat and we were facing the other way (laughs) yeah Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas a couple of people were watching and and getting involved in everything but it really was actually just it it was it was a fun day but fishing's not just it's not normally something that I would do I don't think um have either of you guys been fishing before yeah Daniel well I'm disappointed I I am I've been fishing yeah but I'm disappointed that I don't know more about it yeah and and I that's not my fault (laughs) Who, who didn't teach you dad Right, and did he, but he'd take you fishing, and would yeah, he's he... taken me fishing like once. Oh. Does he go fishing? I've been. Often? I go fishing with friends. Oh, do you? Do you? Yeah. Well, they what, all what do you they do? like do you camping and stuff. They give me a rod. They get Daniel's like, oh, the plus ones here. <laughs> <laughs> but but really, it's something that you need to learn. Yeah. From an from is a, there a skill? I, My dad used to take us to. Like the reservoir next door to our farm, which I don't even know that he used to hold the electric fence down with his boot and lift us over Jesus. it. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> Again, just to give you an insight into why I am the way I am, <laughs> and I don't know that we're allowed on this person's property, but we'd go fishing. I'm gonna tip by the electric fence. No, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and um, don't move. I'm lifting you over. <laughs> And so, and we would, but it was never a joyful experience. So you yeah. think it could be fun, but he was so obsessed with staying quiet, which might have been because oh. we talked a lot, but we weren't allowed to move or talk. And he'd throw the the rod in, and then I think we were just glorified rod holders. Oh, and then we'd yeah. sit there, and then he'd be like, shh, shh. That was fishing, and I didn't yeah. realise it could be enjoyable until my sister got taken by another family fishing, mm. and came back and said that was the best weekend of my life. Caught fish, wow. got to use the rod herself, got to wheel, got like to wheel talk. it in herself, got to talk. <laughs> she's like, you don't have to be silent. It's not true. Does it scare the fish? The fish, well, apparently, but like, she's like, it's not. Yeah. It's, I think it's a bit of a. I don't think he just wanted some silent time and we were there. But anyway. <laughs> Sounds like you were trespassing just quietly. Well, that as well. Maybe that's why he was whispering. Did your dad take it personally? The, that your sister had an introduction to fishing that I don't know surpassed it. his. I actually don't know. I don't. Um, probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Do, it, also, with an electric fence, do, is it constantly electric or does it just pulse occasionally? Constantly electric. Right, oh cool. wow. Yeah. Um. So <laughs> pulse occasionally. What is it? Jurassic Park. <laughs> um. And so I've spoken about my mum before, but she was a Pacific Islander, so she grew up fishing all the time. That was just part of her life was fishing, fishing, fishing. Um, a lot of that stuff was like just you could do spear fishing, or they would have little boats that they would go out every day and you would fish for your food. Um, so she loved it. Um, when mum and dad got together 40 years ago, whenever it was, uh, she lived in an island called Abayang, which was one of the outer islands, and they were there and they were getting a um, they were heading back to the main island. So it's about 50 kilometres from these islands, atolls in Kiribati. About 50 kilometres. If you go by a plane, it takes about 15 minutes. If you go by um, the ferry, it takes two and a half hours. Uh, but 40 years ago, my mum and dad went on an outrigger canoe with uh, six locals. So it was a sailing canoe, but there was no wind. So they had to paddle. So it took them eight hours to paddle <gasps> on a canoe over the Pacific Ocean. And as they were doing it, so they had four people that were 
um, paddling and mum and dad were just sitting there. So they didn't have to paddle? They didn't have to paddle because they were the guests oh. because they just got married and they were going back to the main island and stuff. Yeah, so they were the guests. Hours, you'd eight, pitch in, wouldn't you? you yeah, do, you'd feel a think bit bad. you do so. Buy our offer. Something. <laughs> Are they, you sure you don't want to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they had, uh, yeah, four that would paddle and two were fishing. So they were fishing as they were going over the Pacific oh. Ocean um, and they got... They had like a net that was un- underneath the canoe and then this massive fish has just come and jolted the canoe and Dad had absolutely packed his dacks. He was just like, oh, and a couple of the guys said, let it go. They were speaking in Kiribati. Uh, they're saying, let it go, let it go, and the other guy goes, no, get <gasps> it, get it, get it. And so they've grabbed this and it's come out of the water and it was about a five-foot, 100-kilo shark. Oh, and my dad has just absolutely freaked. And my mum, but my mum didn't squeal, I think, probably like my dad. Uh, anyway, they've grabbed this fish and they've got this, uh, they've got a mallet to hit the um, shark on the head. Not an actual canoe thing. It's like a, a hammer, wooden hammer that they have. Um, and they've... i tell you what, is this a honeymoon? This, yes, this is after the wedding. Imagine yes. going out and some, there's a mallet on a boat with strangers. Be like, what are you doing to me? <laughs> <laughs> Going what a, the what's the mallet for? Yeah. Um, and so they pulled it up and then they smashed it on the head, uh, Dad said, about 100 times in 30 seconds. Um, and they put it on the outrigger. So an outrigger canoe, obviously you've got that other little bit that balances. Now what and is it out? Sorry, when you say an outrigger, so I don't mean to be No, daft. no, no, that's all right. Um, so you've got your canoe, which is just the main bit that everyone's sitting in, yeah. and then you've got another little bit. It's got like... Two bits of wood and then an, a small-looking canoe, but that's just for like balance. Like a sidecar for the oh. water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, no one sits on that. That's just for balance. And if you've got a sail, a sail, um, it would hang off that as well. But it wasn't windy, unfortunately, so they were paddling. So they put the – they killed the shark uh, and they put it on the outrigger and Dad oh. had to travel for six hours with that shark and <laughs> he's just absolutely – crapped his dacks. But the village was so happy when they arrived in Tarawa. It was just the most amazing thing ever that they came home with a with a shark. Dad was just happy to be alive. Yeah. Uh, and, and mum was pretty cool through the whole thing. Apparently that was something that, you know, wasn't that odd in uh, in Kitabas. But crazy. That was a honeymoon. Start of the honeymoon. Oh my Have a good God. marriage. Yeah. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Chrysos Cholkis is a playwright, essayist, screenwriter and best-selling author of seven novels, including Barracuda, The Slap and Damascus, which won the 2019 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction. His latest is titled Seven and a Half, a mashup of autobiography, homage, film and fiction, which makes the defiant claim that beauty is worth our attention. And to tell us about it, the Superfluity co-host joins us now. Christos, welcome back to Breakfasters. Hey, always a pleasure. Thank you. It really is. Is this your lockdown book? It was definitely a, a lockdown book in the sense that it, it was written during lockdown. It was written, um, and in fact, more than any other book I've written, I can date it. it. I started writing it on the morning of the 20th of March 2020 because it was our second day of quarantine. I'd, um, when my partner and I had been in, in the UK, about to start our 35th anniversary drive through the UK. It was uh, it was a thing, uh, something we'd planned for a long time, and then... Within a week of getting to Europe, uh, the world changed. We were really fortunate to be able to, to get a, uh, a plane back home. 
that's because we booked with a travel agent. Mm. <laughs> um, and I'm really, I'm sincerely grateful for that. I'm never going to book my own tickets. <laughs> it's, you know, that's, it's taught me something. And then I, I clearly the ideas in the book I'd been thinking about for a long time, but I, I, I woke up on that second morning uh, and started writing and I finished the first draft on the, the 4th of October of that year. Right. It's not necessarily a lock. Uh, you know, a lockdown novel or a COVID novel that in that the pandemic is referenced as are the bushfires, as are a lot of tragedies and difficulties in the world. But that isn't, but there's also a sense in the book that it could be an, an unspecified near future where another disaster or another human tragedy has also assailed the earth. And part of it was a way of saying, what do I do as a fiction writer? How do I deal with these big subjects and big topics? And also, how do I, you know, how do I also pause and look at what I think is worth loving, worth considering beautiful in the world, mm. even as it is now? What's become taboo about beauty in fiction, do you think? Oh, I think that, uh, you know, the, in the novel... Uh, there is a lot of musing that the narrator does. And, and even though he's called Christos Chalkis, I, I make a real clear division between myself, you know, and and the character of the, of, of the book. Uh, that, you know, and for reasons that are obviously clear to anyone who's listening, uh, why we're turning our attention to the, um, to anger and rage and politics. And, but I think that, in the Western tradition, particularly in the English language tradition, beauty is something we've, we're not sure about how we convey, how we write about. You know, the, the, one, of the, one of the things I've been doing before writing Seven and a Half was uh, immersing myself in Japanese literature, in Eastern European literature. In uh, uh, There was something I found about a concentration on the simple and the beautiful that I was uh, that I I wanted I, I wanted to do in my own writing, and it seemed that we were, you know, these are grand generalized statements. I mean, there is beautiful writing that comes from the English language world, but I thought there there was something about simplicity and beauty that we had lost sight of, or maybe rather than making that grand statement, maybe I should say that I had lost sight of in my writing. Mm. Chrysalis, when I've read your books before. I'm always so struck by how much you, you find you, you kind of create these characters um, that, is, that, that are so can be so human and so dark. You're actually really good at pointing out the opposite of beauty in people or maybe there is beauty in people's flaws. Did you have to kind of... I've always believed that. Yeah, and I was just wondering if you had to kind of reconsider humanness at all when you decided to write about beauty or did you look more externally for that? Uh, one of the things that happens in Seven and a Half, and I should just explain to, to people listening that the, the title is a reference to one of my favourite movies of all time, which is uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is his ninth movie, movie made at a time when he was going, what the hell, do, what, what do I want to say as a filmmaker? What do I do as a filmmaker? So the homage is pretty straightforward there. And one of the things that's really lovely in Fellini's works is when he goes back to childhood 
And that was, if you like, my path into into discovering the the, the beautiful Sarah. Which is, you know, because there's, I realised quite consciously I could paint a really difficult picture of growing up as a working class kid in, in a, you know in, in Richmond in the seventies, and there would be a truth there. But I was incredibly fortunate to grow up in a in a migrant world that was so supportive that allowed me to have so many adventures and I wanted to give the reader a sense of that but always in the back back of my mind is the consciousness that there is fortune and that there is luck in 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 what happens in the world and so one of the in the novel I keep referring to uh, the Orpheus myth which and and the Jean Cocteau film uh, which is a modern-day retelling of that story. And in Orpheus, he goes into the underworld. He goes into Hades, hell, to 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 find his lost love. And that seems to me one of the ways I understand beauty, that you also have to go into darkness, right. if to go into the difficult, to go into where we fail as human beings, to understand what is... Uh, immense about our experience and you know what is truly graceful about loving someone even when as we said they're they're flawed so with my stories of you know going backwards into the past or descend uh reclaiming that past or thinking about that past i do a parallel story which is a film that i've always wanted to make called sweet thing which is also about someone who used to be in the porn industry back in the 90s who has a beautiful well has a beautiful life he does he he loves his wife jenna he loves his his son neil he lives in australia now they're struggling financially he, an offer is made to him he goes back to the states and he confronts and finds a brother that he has not seen for decades and for me they're parallel stories you know, about someone who had fortune and someone who did not. And, and you know, I think there is a beauty in that character, Paul, even though he's a flawed character. I think there's a beauty in his wife, Jenna, even though she's a flawed character. I think there is, and this is harder to say because I sound like a wanker, I think there's a beauty in the Christos, even <laughs> though he's a very, very flawed character. Uh, you know, I'm writing... I'm writing seven and a half at a time when everyone's really, it seemed to me, and this is my perspective, it seemed, it seemed impossible for people to sit down and talk across differences. Mm. Yeah. And that's that was a real, I don't know, there's like a light you follow when you're writing or when you're pursuing something, and that was the light I wanted to pursue was to say, uh, let's let me do something that's beautiful that doesn't ignore the u- ugly, but that fr- that that says that's you know that if we're truly going to understand ourselves in the world, we 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 need to integrate the beautiful and the ugly together. I mean that's the, that's the traditional notion of the word sublime, which is off you know a very old romantic term about the beautiful, and the sublime is not just the lovely, the sublime is also the terrifying. So this writer, Christos, goes to a, a, a house, secluded house, spends some time on his own writing the story of Paul, this former porn star, 
And now that you've got, A, I suppose my first question is, is Sweet Thing now out of your system or you, would you still actually like to see it as a film? Uh, Dan, I, I, you know what I realised is that, uh, that this was a film that I really wanted to direct. I've been wanting to direct since I was a little boy and I'm not, that's, not, um, that's not an exaggeration. I've, I've, I've been dreaming about cinema since primary school, right? I've got, you know, I've got, <laughs> I've got exercise books back that mum still has in a garage of films I wanted to make, but it was not going to be my path. And I think writing Seven and a Half was also, because it's full, I hope when you read it, it's full of a love of cinema and what cinema means. I, I think it's found its place, you know, uh, yeah. knowing that I don't, I just don't have that, that set of skills to be a film director. I don't think I have the patience to be, to be really honest. Uh, it was like in writing the story within the story and saying and and uh, and saying to the reader, this is the film that I wish I had made. I've both had the sensation of making it, but also giving it giving it its place in the only way that I know how to do it, which yeah. is through writing, through storytelling, through through that. And now that you've got seven and a half out of your system, in what ways? If at all, do you think you're a different person at the end of this? Ah, uh, that's. I mean, it's because it's still in the moment. In a way, it's hard to answer that cogently. Um, so sorry that I'm hesitating, but I'm trying to think through. I think from now on, I will. I've realised how important it is the ritual of doing work. I've always I've always known that, but you know that actually set aside the time and just make sure that you you write a minimum amount of words a day. Now I've always that's always been a principle in in my my writing life, but this working on this book has really confirmed it that that's how I stay healthy in terms of imagination, and I think. Uh, you know, maybe this is just me being uh, Grandpa Simpson, but really that thing that, that the writer does throughout the novel, which is go, I'm just going to avoid the phone. I'm just going to – that doesn't mean I'm going to throw away the phone, but that notion of avoiding the phone, mm. it's it, – the distractions of of the screen, uh, uh, they, they – they actually unsettle me. Um, they, they, they make me lose focus. They make me forget what it is that I truly enjoy about being with the people I love. Don't you, you know? think that if Chris Ostrogas struggles with this, what hope do the rest of us have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, you know, the, I'm, sometimes I, I, I speak to the, the really young people in my life and I think they must be, they're learning, you know, they're learning ways to negotiate uh, that, that ubiquity of the image and the rush of, of, of images. Look, you know, beauty, you, you asked really early on, why is beauty so, why are we suspicious of beauty? And it feels like that because if we stop and say that, that we're somehow going to be, somehow it seems that we're not aware of what is really ugly and terrible and hard and the suffering in the world. I think you can hold both. Mm. Right? And I think I mean, it's, it's actually thinking of the young people I love in my life. You know, I want, I, 
I do, I do think they are beautiful. <laughs> I do want them to see that. I do, I do want them to be able to have those moments that are right about in seven and a half, which is uh, even from, you know as a young kid walking into the Orthodox Church in Burnley Street in Richmond, smelling the incense, smelling the uh, the sweat and the perfume and the cologne, and thinking I was amongst the most beautiful people on earth and just delirious from sensation. I want, I, yeah, I want them to have that. I want them to have sensation. Mm. <laughs> and they don't get the sensation. It's the same at, at this moment. I'm looking into the studio through a screen. And it's wonderful that I'm talking to you, but it's not the same thing if, as if I was there. No. You know? but we all miss that. Yeah. That's what we've missed over the last 18 months is the, the reality of that experience we're out of time but i want to ask about your parents and your dad spells anyway <laughs> maybe i should come back <laughs> that, would, that would be good. part two with christos <laughs> exactly uh the novel is seven and a half it's your what eighth book eighth book yes yes amazing congratulations i can't believe you say that it's still nerve-wracking it will always be nerve-wracking. Yeah. It will always be nerve-wracking because you do put yourself – I mean, you know, I, I put myself – there's an aspect of myself that is in every work I do. That's, the, the, that's the, you know, the, the, the question of how much is autobiography. I, I kind of flipped it with seven and a half quite consciously, right? So um, usually you you know, people know it's fiction, but they're out, they're trying to work out how much – biography is in the fiction and I wanted to do the reverse and say look the writer's called Christos Cholkas but how much fiction is in the biography <laughs> <laughs> what a head fuck uh, well it's out now via Alan and Unwin Christos Cholkas thanks very much always a pleasure thank you Melbourne's own Denise Scott is an actor, author, TV and radio legend and winner of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival's People's Choice and Award for Most Outstanding Show. She's appearing as part of the return of Easy Comedy at Easy Street Concert Hall in Collingwood and ahead of the shows this November, the entertainment icon joins us now. Denise, welcome back to Breakfasters. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Hey, Shots. My voice is a little rough. I've got some flowers in the room. And I've got a little bit of hay fever. It's all happening. It is all happening. No wonder you got flowers. Congratulations. Uh, well, yes. Um, I got flowers for doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Having given birth to my daughter 35 years ago, who's now given birth to our first grandchild. Oh. So I got flowers, which is lovely. And in fact, Judith Lucy gave them to me because she doesn't understand that you give the flowers to the person who did all the work. <laughs> Not the grandmother with whom you drink wine with. But anyway, good on it. Beautiful. Have you sensed, uh, you know, is it incredibly meaningful? Have you changed in your molecules in any way? Because I'm a grandmother? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, we are very eager. I, have you ever met my partner, John? Bonnie's dad of 40 years. If you, he's the most eager man. Yeah. And so they've really put a little distance between us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
No, you can't come here every day <laughs> and just hang out with us every day, Mum and Dad. You have to back off just yeah. a bit. Uh, that's so, going to change in a couple of months when they're desperate for you to come and look after the baby. Yes, exactly. When we can be of use, <laughs> exactly. we, the, that door will be wide open. What about John having an audience? Is that going to help? What about what? Well, John having an audience for his, I don't know, you know. Clowning. Clowning and. <laughs> oh, well, this is the thing because the other big thing that's happened is that John has retired from his job, the last job he had, which was, to, you know, doing stuff in, like artist stuff in schools, getting artists into schools, the kind of thing. But, but there hasn't been school for two years anyway, so he's been home. Yeah. And then he. Um, he, he's officially retired. So he's following me around. <laughs> he's following me around the house going, so what do you think about dinner? And it's like 10 a.m. in the morning. I'm going, I don't know. <laughs> you want to watch something on TV? Oh, yeah, all right. And then, like, for instance, the other night, the Burt Newton um, tribute show was on. And for one reason or another, I, I, you know, huge fan of Bert. I really am, have been forever. But I didn't, wa- I didn't want to watch that show. And well, would John leave me alone? I just went to the bedroom. Why, Scotty? Knock, knock, knock on our bed. Why don't you want to watch the show? Why, why? Thinking there was some deep and meaningful reason. And there possibly was, but I wasn't going to tell him. I need my time. I need the space. Yeah. Anyway. Is there, what is it about Bert that you loved? I mean, because you, you did that time slot as well. Um, uh, Bert was a really, really generous and funny, funny man. And, you, well, you know us comedians. There's a few of us who aren't funny. <laughs> There's a few of us around who just aren't funny when you meet them in real life. And Bert, years ago, um, uh, my friend, and Judith's friend as well, the late Linda Gibson, when she was dying of cancer, we had a, a roast for her, you know, a, like, and, and it was the most amazing thing. And John Clark spoke, <clears throat> excuse me, the flowers are really choking me out now. <laughs> you're confused about that. Lay off on the heavy perfume numbers, <laughs> Anyway, so so there was um, it was an amazing day that where we celebrated Linda. Linda was still alive to enjoy that celebration, and we rang. I don't even know who you ring to get on to Bert, but whoever it was, we rang, and he he had met Linda on his show, Good Morning Australia. You know, everyone went on it at the time, and uh, and he came to the roast. And did the most amazingly funny set. None of it about Linda, but that's fine. Um, but he did, and it was one of the first times he took his toupee off. And because we didn't, you know, well, we all knew, but we'd never seen him without his hair. And it was really hilarious. And he, he was just fantastic. And we were in the hi-fi bar, you know, in its grungy days. Like and there's Bert, and he and he hung around and he was wonderful, wonderful guy. It strikes me that uh, even 
with even if you could see a joke coming, maybe in fact because you could see it coming, it was so delicious and satisfying and cheeky when it arrived. That he just he sold material like nobody's business. Yeah, and, and and you know, having said that, I I don't want to brag, but I was at the Logies. <laughs> I know, I know. And I just, <laughs> whenever it was, the last <clears throat> these flowers really are giving me great. So I was at the Logies um, when uh, must have been the last Logies we had, and. Bert was doing his quite now infamous performance there that got him a lot of grief on social media. And uh, I was right down the back of the room because I was with Studio 10. Got the furthest table in the furthest corner. And Paddy Newton sits next to me. And I'm quite amazed by that. You know, like Paddy to me is royalty. You know, anyway, she was incredible. And I, I didn't really know her, but she was so wonderful to talk to and, and she was nervous for Bert that night and I'm going, really? You're nervous for Bert? And she's going, oh yes, yes. And then Bert did his thing and the infamous implications of, you know, Graham and Don Lane and their young boys and and she looked at her phone and the room loved him and but then Patty immediately looked at her phone and just sort of slumped at the table and said, yeah, this is why we don't do stuff now. Right. And, and the, the social media was attacking. And in fact, Matt, Matthew rang from LA for, uh, almost immediately because he'd seen it. And it was all on and it was devastating. And, you know, talk about spoil my night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I, I, I really found that incredible and felt like, you're 80 and you're taking the brunt of a lot of, you know, valid anger from people, but not, he wasn't the right person to get it. But anyway. Yeah, what a, what a life in that industry to still be being put through the ringer yeah. at that age. Yeah, I know, I'm dreading it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of going to the ringer, you and um, Judith are cooking up a new show. Are you still... Disappointed yeah, about well, things or one another or no, Well, life? I can't say too much. Right. Can't even give you the title, which oh. tells it all. <laughs> um, but, yes, so Judith and I have, have been, well, we've been doing bits and bobs together over the pandemic, and you don't want to waste anything, do you? You don't want to have just written something and then it's gone. So we're trying to shoehorn what we've come up with over the pandemic into something that people will pay for. (laughs) (laughs) Is it nice to be in a room with one another again? Are you in? It's great. We only, oh yes, we've done it twice now. So we started working on this current show, ideas and stuff on Zoom. I tell you what, there's a terrific visual. <laughs> Judith and I on Zoom. We don't make a lot of effort. You know, like, I make jokes about not wearing a bra, but Judith really carries that one through. Oh, I mean, I, the last time we Zoomed Judith, she we just got full frontal boob um, on the Zoom, but no one else could see, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's full on relaxed, shall we say. Relaxed. <laughs> 
And uh, yep, and then we're seeing one another. But that's bad for us because what we do when we work together, and we're famous for it, and we we don't apologise for it, is we get together, we work for 45, 50 minutes, and then we're off to lunch. And, <laughs> and that's the way it happens. What a beautiful Always wet collaboration that would be. The uh, the live comedy's back weekly. Sorry? Weekly live comedy is back. Oh, I thought, what the hell? The weekly? The weekly want me? <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Pickering wants me as his sidekick. I'm there, Charlie. <laughs> yes, it's great. Isn't it great? And so that'll be on, well, it's on now, mm. every Thursday, Thursday nights at Easy, Easy Street Comedy, which is a great venue. A lovely venue in Easy Street, Collingwood. And I'm hosting this, you know, like means I've got to concentrate for longer than, you know, five minutes, which will be very hard. I'll have to really, really work hard that night. And there's and a, there's a line-up. Well, yeah, there's a note to say also that the live stream component is over. Yes. Yeah. You've got to show up. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that, oh, I hated to... Uh, doing the live streaming stuff because you you know I, I had to put up sort of I, I blue tack Christmas lights to the wall behind me thinking that said I don't know show bits but just said <laughs> Christmas lights that fall down halfway through your set <laughs> <laughs> I did one Zoom gig have I got enough time yeah go yeah, on, go on. Anyway, I've got I did a Zoom gig in the early days of the pandemic for, um, it was actually really incredible. It was for Carers Week. And so all the carers, in fact, was Bobby part of that one? I was. I was emceeing that. At lunch with Denise Scott. That was a fun event. Well, and, but was that the one where I forgot the clock stopped? Yes, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you were emceeing. And I was going by the clock, a kitchen clock I had on my wall. Um, I didn't know it had stopped the minute I started the gig. So I went to do about 10 minutes with my Bobby, and I did about an hour. Yeah, about an and hour. I thought, <laughs> and I thought, geez, the clock has, this minute has taken a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, stay tuned for the Judith, Lucy and Denise Scott shoehorned No Material Goes to Waste post-lockdown spectacular. Plus the live shows at Easy Street uh, in Collingwood, 35 Easy Street. Go to comedy.com.au for all the details there, Thursday nights. And um, so delicious to check in with Denise Scott. Oh, I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Scotty. Thank you for having me. Woo! Ah, That's right. Triple R. Went out to a cafe uh, last week and a friend of ours just got up to go and get some water and glasses for the mm. table and as she was walking back to the table, someone on, on another table goes, excuse no. me, uh, can, can we get some of that too, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she has just smiled and gone, yep, yep. And so she put ours down uh, and then she got up and she went and got theirs and they didn't notice that she came and sat down with us and we were just like, does she think that you work here? She's like, I think so. And we're like, you didn't want to tell her? And she was like, uh, 
what else am I doing? <laughs> so I can't she just believe did. she she actually did it. Yeah, you know? what a good person. You're up anyway, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's it. I think that's why she kind of stopped and then just thought it would be more awkward to have to explain it and then make her feel uncomfortable. So yeah. she was just like, whatever. Um, I when I was working with the Melbourne Renegades, the the cricket franchise, uh, I would um, work as a host and I had the same uniform as the players. So every time I would come to the game, I'd come early and I'd have to enter the same way that the players were and you'd get fans that would be lining up and trying to get signatures and and photos and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And people would stop and be like, hey... You can can I get a can I get a photo? And I kind of I'm just like oh I'm I'm not a player and they're like oh can I please get a photo? I was like I'm sorry I'm I'm re- I'm not a player I I'm just I'm the host I'm, I'm not playing today, and I kind of walked through a couple of times and people kind of got disheartened and it was just an awkward situation, and then I had this one time. Um, I think it was it was just during the game and I was walking through, it might have been the innings break or something. Anyway, I was walking and a young girl's um, hung over the fence and she's like, excuse me, can you sign my bat? I said, oh, oh God. I'll go and get one of the one of the players to, to, to come and give you their autograph. You, you will prefer the players. She's like, oh, can you please sign it? And I was like, oh. And then the dad looks at me and goes, can you just sign her bat, please? <laughs> She just wants an autograph. Mm. And I was like, sure, sure, yep, yep, no worries. And then after that, I think I did because it was just an awkward every time I did it. And they mm. were just like, I'm wearing uniform. They assumed that I was a player. What sort of bat was it? Uh, it was just like one of those toy bats and not just one that you specifically get autographs for. Yeah. Just a tiny little bat and she was hanging over. So then after that, I did, like I would sign autographs and then the players would catch me doing it. They're like, oh, Bobby. Who does Bobby think she is? Exactly. Or? <laughs> well, kind of just mocking me. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> if I don't sign it, they're going to cry. The parents are going to tell me off. So I've got to do something. Rock a hard place. Yeah, well, I felt but like now, I was. But that, that, now that signature is probably be the most valuable. Thank you. Yeah, yes, right. exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Smithy. I appreciate that. Um. <laughs> That's rough and it's. I feel like a lot of it comes down to polo shirts. Is the uniform, oh. was it a polo shirt? It was just a bloody polo shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think I even had like black pants and shoes on. Like I didn't have runners or anything else, but it all kind of looked the same, yeah. I think. To if I wear a polo shirt, and I don't often, and it's been a while since you've been out in public anyway, as in one has been out in public, but if you go into a hardware store or whatever and you're wearing the wrong colour polo shirt, oh, yeah. you're a fair chance of being asked. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you're a staff member. Yeah. I was at a gym once and I was helping a friend do some sit-ups on a ball, one of those giant balls. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, look at me. I just, I'm not a gym, I'm not a, I'm not gym an instructor <laughs> or yeah. a gym rat. And this was also during my heavy, heavy parting days, but I was 21. So I was at uni and I was going out a lot. So yeah. I was even less gymmy than now. And a lady came up and she said, can I get some assistance over here, please? I've been waiting a while. <laughs> and my friend goes, just help her. I said, I'm not going to. I said, I don't even know if I'm telling, what, what I'm telling you to do is correct. Yeah. Damage this lady. Yeah. There's signing bats, <laughs> then there's corner causing spinal injuries. Spinal injuries, I know, right? Oh, uh, I um, I used to play. I, I used to work at a sports club, and I played football there as well. So I would work there on some nights, and then other nights I'd be playing footy, and would come in after training, um, and have a beer or whatever else, have a meal. And a couple of times when I was there socially, I had people just kind of tap me on the shoulder, like, "Hey, can we get a jug of beer over here?" I'm like. Well, firstly, it's not table service. Yeah. <laughs> get up and go to the bar yeah. and I'm pissed. So, no, I can't get your yeah. drinks. And I'm pissed. <laughs> it's, it's the uh, would, 
Also, I like the fact, because I feel like if I help someone with their water, like your friend, yeah. mm. I would screw it up or whatever. The fact that you can get away with being a staff member is pretty cool. The fact that you could get away with being a player, like you look fit, you looked yeah. like a player. You have the vibe yeah. of, yeah. of yeah. someone who's prof- a professional athlete. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I think that's why I was so confused and awkward because I just didn't feel like it. Like they were all 10 or 15 years younger than me as well. Um, Mm. But, yeah, no, you're right. I I think in the end I did just appreciate it and then just ride with it and take the selfies. Do do people still take – well, this is what I was going to ask. Do people still ask for autographs or all selfies now? Because Uh, that would be a bit weirder, right? Yeah, to get a selfie with me. Yeah, because maybe later they'd look back and go, (laughs) like, who is this person? Completely. Yes, uh, I did take a couple of selfies and you'd kind of be on the other side of the fence um, and then just – so I guess you're kind of keeping your distance there. Although I did have a look at the Matildas games and they were – yeah, they were – had to stay like two metres away. They weren't allowed to touch the fans. Oh. I guess that's just because people were asking for autographs uh, and like there were young kids asking them to sign their top or whatever and they're like, sorry, we can't actually oh. touch you. And there was a barrier between them. Mm. So, it, not in my day when I was a sports star. <laughs> does this mean that uh, selfies have ruined sporting memorabilia? Or I mean, perhaps, right. I mean, mm. but selfies yeah. have ruined all memorabilia. You just don't – I just can't remember the last time I saw – I mean, maybe in this situation is you still ask footballers. Like, do you still go to training and ask footballers for autographs or do you just ask for selfies now? I mean, uh, pandemic aside, yeah. what's the popular uh, – yeah. I, I think you've still got a bit of both. I think people like the autographs because you see them wearing the footy jumpers with the with – the, autographs on them and yeah, like the more yeah. autographs you get the kind of the better it is i'm so jealous i we were i was out for lunch with um former breakfasters geraldine hickey and jeff sparrow this is when jez and i were still on air and jeff wasn't we we're catching up and a fan came up that i thought was excited because i saw the three of us sitting together <laughs> but she just went oh geraldine hickey see Aww. you on the tv all the time could i have a selfie and then jeff and i had to kind of shuffle out of the way and i was like i was just so Jeff's like, oh, someone invite me on. Have you been paying attention? (laughs) Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your pants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. And you start singing about dirt. Digger's here to get down and dirty on the talkback line, 93881027. Sarah's happy to take your call. Morning, Digger. <laughs> morning, morning. So great to hear people under pressure live radio <laughs> taking phone calls. I only did it for 10 bloody years. It's not that hard. <laughs> Shut up, Digger. <laughs> hey, what's the text line number? Have we all forgotten it? I'll look it up. Keep talking. Okay. Um, <laughs> tell us, it's, you, it's been a while. You, do you miss it? Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually the thrill that I miss of getting just before, you know, you go to air every single, you know, week it was like butterflies would go because, yeah, we just didn't know what was going to happen. What was your most commonly yeah. asked question? Uh, I've got this plant and it's got green leaves and something's wrong. Oh, I see. Don't ask that question. Zero four six six nine eight one zero two seven. So zero four six six nine eight one zero two seven is the number. There is one here that uh, want to uh, address. The, everywhere in this Texas garden is shady because there's buildings next door. How can I make it okay to grow veggies? Did you say Texas garden? No, <laughs> Texter. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> everywhere in my garden is shady. How do, right. how do I make it okay to grow veggies? Well, you can grow any leaf vegetable you want in shade. 
So if you're just going to have a sleeve from it, your lettuces, your pak choy, coriander, that kind of stuff, shade's absolutely fine. So go with that. Yeah. And is there, uh, so that, that weird, do you ever get stumped? Have you ever been stumped in your decades doing this? Oh, yeah. We had a couple of guys that um, would obviously spend all week trying to find the most obscure plant problem and scientific question and then ring up. It would probably happen probably three or four times a year. They'd save it or they'd probably spend three months researching and find out, you know, what was, I don't know, some very rare orchid that was just recently discovered in, you know, in the jungles of Peru and and what's its reproductive cycle. (laughs) And then when you know the Latin. (laughs) (laughs) But that was kind of fun because as plant nerds, we're like, okay, I'm going to learn heaps about it and we're going to do a whole segment on it next week. (laughs) Hey, we've got some questions coming in, but do you want to talk about something before we start? I do. There's something that's really important. It kind of it gets. It's a tricky one, and it's about repotting. So I get asked a lot of questions all the time about, well, what size pot do I put this in? Because when you go to nurseries, plants are grown in like uniform pot sizes, and they're actually priced by pot size most of the time. So you know, most people will know punnets um, that your veggies kind of come in, but perennial plants they go into 150 mil and 200 mil pots sometimes into what we call a four mil, which is like a 120 mil pot, and you've got tube stock, which is a 100 mil pot. So really it's about when you get your plant home from the nursery, what to do with it, because most of the time they do need to be potted up. So there's some basic rules of thumb about it. I tend to tell people, have a squeeze of the pot that you've got that you bought your plant in. If there's plenty of room left in there, you've literally got a couple of months before you have to do something. So you've got a bit of wiggle room, mm-hmm. literally. If it's firm in the pot, ideally at the nursery, don't buy it because that means that it's a little bit pot bound. But if you absolutely have to have it or you're given a plant from someone and it's a bit firm when you squeeze the pot, it needs to be repotted straight away. So repotting is basic. Make sure the roots aren't spiralling. If they are, get a sharp knife and cut them off. But essentially double the pot size of what you bought it in. So if the plant was in a 150 mil pot, get yourself another plastic 300 mil pot and pot it up into that. All right. What about, can I ask, uh, to, just to knock some of these on the head, the best non-toxic way to deal with cabbage moths whose caterpillars are getting into my broccoli? That's okay, there's, a, there's another plant called landcress, which is a relative of the cabbage family. And if you plant that, so look for landcress, plant that out six weeks or so before you're going to plant out your broccoli crop and it attracts the cabbage moth and it, when it eats it, it kills them. Oh, it's tarsh? Yeah. So we can't smell it. It's just the thing that it's, because it's in the brassica family, that's what they're attracted to. They come in, smell it, chew it, and then that moth does not lay eggs and you, you minimise your infestation. How do you spell that? Land, L-A-N-D. Yeah. Cress, C-R-E-S-S. Cool. That was an easy one. Okay. Uh, I've got another one. Slugs are getting to stone fruit trees and uh, decimate the ca- so they decimate canopy. Being told, mm. throw wood ash but big trees. Okay, sorry, that's not so much a question as a number of statements. Yeah, um, so they yes. can actually yeah, do that around the base of the trees. Uh, there's a technique called grease banding, which is putting a slimy layer of grease or some sort of sticky material of Vaseline around the trunk of the tree. But you can even put the wood ash into that, like a real give a sticky layer, and then the wood ash into that. And as the slug crawls across the wood ash, um, it dries it out because it's so alkaline and just oh. kills them then and there. They don't even get up the tree. 
Oh, yeah. Send it in your text and have Sarah criticise your syntax. Oh, sorry, what? I was, <laughs> I've got to read it out live. Sure. And it makes it sound like I can't read. Anyway, sorry, uh, I apologise. Is it okay if I train my Indian rope upwards, not have it hanging down? Absolutely. No rules in Horde Cold Town. No, oh, I like that. All right. Uh, do you want to read one out, Bobby? Yes. Hi, Digger. Oh. Morning, Bobby. Yeah, am I reading I don't know. I don't know. No, no. Okay, oh, I'll go to the I reckon, next one. I'll go to the next one, one just in case. <laughs> I thought you were stitching me up with that one. Sorry, I really wasn't. <laughs> now um, I feel like I'm getting stitched up. What's going no, on? No, sorry, I'll just go to the next one. We've got plenty coming through. So it says, sorry, Digger and Sarah, but I do have a gardenia that keeps getting yellow leaves. I'm giving it gardenia food. Any other advice? That's from Julie. Yeah. Uh, three teaspoons of magnesium sulfate or Epsom salts into a watering can. Fill it up and then liquid feed it once a week. That gets so rid of the... in magnesium right now because there's budding and flowering and everything going on so you've got to replace the magnesium which is epsom salts okay hi digger we're thinking of planting two fruit trees of the same family in a hole as a lazy man's grafting what are your thoughts yep. any advice yep ancient technique it's it's called planting as a duo sometimes you can even do it as three and plant as a trio and that's exactly what it is rather than this is pre-grafting put two trees in the same hole they dwarf each other out but you get cross-pollination Wait, no one wants to ring. Everyone wants to text. How do you um, get? How do you get rid of powdery? Oh, no, I love this. No, it's great. How do you get rid of powdery mildew and hops? Uh, very difficult. So organically, um, there is organic fungicides that you can spray, um, but ideally, it's it's about it not happening in the first place. So maybe your hops are too crowded, and they're just mm. not getting enough airflow. So maybe thin them down a little bit because they grow vertically and they go completely wild. So thin them out through pruning and maybe in the future don't plant them as close to each other. Maybe the phone's not working. 93881027. It is working <laughs> and it's fine. Just keep texting everyone. Uh, how do you control scale on indoor plants? My floors get sticky from them. It's gross. And how do you how to control fungus gnats? Too many questions. Um, okay, with the scale, first and foremost, all indoor plants, you need to look at them at least every second day. Like you're, you know look at it as mindfulness and just go and inspect your plants and the first sign of scale is to just use your thumb and scrape them off so like anything if you let anything get out of control it's going to cover your floor in scale and the same with the gnats you've got to get them outside at least probably once a month one week out of a month get them outside and water them deeply and let the fresh air get to it and let the outside environment actually interact with that soil and potentially birds and things will come and, and eat them off Hmm. Um, got one from Brenda that's come through. How do I kill weeds gro growing through bricks safely? Uh, no poison? Question mark. Uh, they break off too easily, leaving the roots behind. Yep. Boiling water first thing in the morning. So as soon as the sun hits them, boiling water every day for at least a week, and that'll set them backwards. And urine, human urine, not fresh, aged urine. So let it sit in a bucket for a couple of days and then pour that on neat and that will kill most plants. My dad used to go around pouring hot water on the bricks every morning and now I'm <laughs> concerned that it wasn't hot water. <laughs> it was steaming. You'll know the difference. When the sun hits it, you'll know the difference. Hi, Digger. I know you said wait for five days of, oh, crap, the phone's ringing. <laughs> awesome. Nah, well, Wonderful. I'm just going to put that person on hold for a second and uh, we'll come back to you. Okay. Just one more. Hi, Digger. I know you said wait for five days of warm weather uh, before planting tomatoes, but I thought the weather was on track, so I planted them on Saturday right before the massive storm. And now yeah. this weather, will they survive? 
Uh, first thing I want to say is I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> um, they might, they will survive, but again, we'll run into some issues with some fungal diseases because the weather's not warm enough and they're just sitting there and it's wet. It's as wet as this morning. So, um, yeah, keep an eye out for fungal diseases and just wait until the weather warms up a bit. All right. Everyone We're going to try and talk to this person on the phone. Um, yeah. Hello. Oh, God. Hello. You're live on Triple R. Have you got a question for Digger? Oh. I do, yeah. Oh, great. Hi, it's Maddie here. Could you turn the radio down? Sorry, I'm echoing back at myself. Oh, thank you. That's great. That's much better. Cool. Um, hi, team. Hi. Hello. Lovely to hear from Morning. you. Thanks for being our first brave caller. Um, it's, it's, it's Maddie here. I, I just want to have a question for all of you. Do you think that gardening improves your memory and is that why Digger is able to hold so much information in his head? <laughs> Did you hear that? Yeah. Um, I am a robot. <laughs> it's just the same as anything else. Like, I, I live it and work in it every single day. So, um, it's just repetition. I don't I don't think I've got a good memory at all. Sorry, what was your name? <laughs> and once you okay, learn okay. to um, pour hot piss on bricks, you never forget, hey? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, thanks, Maddie. Thanks, that was, Maddie. That was very thanks, sweet. Maddie. Nice to hear from you. See, that wasn't so bad. Bye. Bye. Yeah. There was another call coming through, but we don't we don't have someone to, an- to answer to put people on hold. We weren't prepared. I should have sent, sent you oh, out. Oh, yes. Um, so I can't put people on hold whilst yeah. we're talking. So feel free to call back. We will, we will get to you. Uh, any more yeah. on the text Is line? it aphids? Aphids are attacking my chilli plants in our hothouse. I've planted chives and garlic chives, which has reduced them, but still lingering. Yeah. So the idea is to get the super smelly plants, so the garlic chives, or you can even use rosemary, lavender, anything, and turn it into a liquid form. So put it into a little spray bottle with some hot water, make a tea out of essentially, and just spray that, and it disguises the scent and the taste of your little new, you know, tender little plants, and that can uh, deter the aphids as well. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong with this uh, pronunciation. How do you take a cutting from an epiphytic orchard? Epiphytic, yeah. So epiphytic orchards can take nutrient out of the air. So that's what epiphytic means. It's just like they're they're called air plants. Um, To take a cutting from it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you... From, to my knowledge, this is a stumper, but to my knowledge, um, you can only collect seeds from them. Ah, okay. Look, we're going to probably maybe take one more. Uh, morning digger, how do I get rid of slater bugs, wood lice eating my strawberries? Aha, uh-huh. really difficult one um, because slaters love a little dry surface to crawl across and if you've got really wet ground obviously that'll deter them but it'll also make your strawberries go a little bit moldy so the reason they get called strawberries is to get put them on a mound with some straw underneath them and so if the straw's kept moist that can keep the slaters and things away from them so plant your strawberries on a mound i didn't know that was so we've got look one more actual phone call God help us all. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, go, let's go for let's it. Let's give it a shot. Um, hi, you're with the breakfast at Lunch Bar. Oh, could you please turn your radio down? Oh, yeah. Is that better? Yeah, that's it. Oh, my, all the way down. Oh, yeah. Does that work? Yeah, that's better. Thanks, mate. Um, what's your question for Digger? Thanks for your call. 
Oh, no worries. Uh, I've got a lemon tree in the backyard, and it's it's really big and lots of leaves, but there's, I think there's like a colony of spiders or something that curls all the, the leaves up, and it seems to kill the flowers. Is there a yeah. way to get rid of the spiders without just cutting down the whole tree, essentially? Um, potentially the curling of leaves can be a nutrient deficiency. Um, some spiders do cause the leaves to create a home, but essentially if you've got an issue with it, it's just to start removing those leaves because if it's, you know, if it's with those leaves curling, they're not photosynthesizing, they're not helping the plant. So, yeah, just devote some time, make a cuppa, go out there and get into it and just start picking off or pruning off those affected leaves. How many, how many leaves are we talking? A few hundred, I reckon. Well, then it's a nutrient deficiency. So it's, it sounds like it's a trace element deficiency. So you'd need to get yourself off to the nursery and get some trace elements and feed it. No worries. There Thank you, you very much. Thanks so much for your call. You're welcome. Cool. I reckon that's about it, uh, Digger. Mm-hmm. Even though we've okay, got look, lots coming in. Can I just in? drop in one last tip about, about repotting? Yes. That's the number one thing because people, if you repot into your big ornamental pots, they're too heavy to change. And remember, you've got to change your potting mix every two years. Mm. So plant into a plastic pot and insert that into your ornamental pot. Great so tip. So ornamental pots are a little bit bigger than your plastic pot. Beautiful. Thanks very much, Digger. Thanks, Digger. Pleasure. Working in a variety of media, artist Patricia Piccinini has represented Australia at the 50th Venice Biennale, was awarded an honorary doctorate of visual and performing arts by the Victorian College of the Arts and been named the most popular contemporary artist in the world after a show in Rio de Janeiro attracted close to half a million visitors. Now, an ecosystem of hyper-real silicon sculptures, video, sound and light can be seen at Flinders Street Station as the mysterious ballroom opens its doors for Australia's preeminent visual artist. And to tell us about it, finally, Patricia joins us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Well, firstly, congratulations to you and Rising for making this happen. Oh, it's thrilling that it's open. Uh, it just reopened on Monday morning. Uh, and, you know, you've been shut down, reopened, shut down, reopened. Are you... Uh, are you embracing the finality of its opening now? Um, yes, because actually it was a pretty rough road. Um, when it shut, 750 Australian artists um, had their work closed. And so, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very big grief. So I just took to my bed. Um, <laughs> so now it's good to emerge and to have it open and to see it the city come to life again and to be able to um, live life. Mm. What's your relationship to the space that your this exhibition exists in? Uh, I, do you feel the pressure because it, it's so meaningful to Melbourne? Yeah, I did feel that responsibility and, um, yeah, that weighed heavily on me. I did think what is worth saying in these times and essentially the exhibition um, is about our relationship with nature, that, that's what it's about. Mm. So, and to me, this seems yeah, a valuable thing to discuss as a community. And is there anything about the space itself that lends itself to your work or what, what's the conversation between your space and the work, do you think? Oh, um, well, this space is an extraordinary space. It was built to be used by people. So there's a gym in there, there's a library, there's a billiards room, there's a ballroom, there are all these lecture rooms. I mean, it's an extraordinary space. It was always meant to be populated. It's only recently that it's sort of um, 
hasn't been used and it's and it's fallen into disrepair and when we got in there there was no electricity uh-huh. like literally and a, a lot of water damage that had been fixed but in, it was in real disrepair but it was beautiful absolutely beautiful um and just extraordinary like you walk in there and you'll never be in a corridor that long again in your life. Mm. Yeah, that's true. It's the length of the platform. <laughs> like it's like it just you it just it just go into the exhibition for that. Yes. <laughs> you know, Which in itself is one of the world's longest train platforms, I think. I think you're right, yeah. And and it's kind of this real liminal space because like on one side there are the trains coming in and out and the people getting on the trains. And on the other side, there are all these um, amazing experiences in these different rooms, which are kind of in themselves mythological. Mm. Uh, have you been up many times? Like, do you come in amongst the crowd ever? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> With your mask on, incognito. Yeah, yeah. No, no one knows that. I, no one knows me, and I'm just there all the time. I can't. I sort of try and stop myself from asking people. How was it? What did you think? Oh. <laughs> I, but I do in the elevator sometimes go, so was it, how'd you go? <laughs> how, well, how has your relationship with the work changed then? Because it wasn't created, I suppose, with uh, uh, maybe the pandemic and, the, and this, this lockdown, this world's longest lockdown in mind, but it has kind of taken on a life during this. Um, has your relationship with what you created changed when, when you've gone in there? Um. Well, it was actually created with the pandemic and uh, and the environment in mind, because uh, I did make it through the first um, the first part of the first lockdowns. Yeah. Um, and it does the work does talk about the bushfires of 2019, 2020, um, and it does talk about um, our ideas around um, sort of intrinsic value of other creatures, and that's how um, COVID came to pass because we encroached on their um, environment. So all of these threads do weave through the exhibition. Um, But yeah, no, my relationship is one of absolute gratitude that it's, you know, that I've survived, um, that the exhibition survived the the pandemic and that it's on again. And in fact, it's on till June. You know, I, yeah, I'm just really, really grateful that it's, it's still on. How long does it take you to create an exhibition like this? Well, um, about two years. Right. So Gideon and Hannah, um, the directors of the festival, came to me and said, oh, can we, do, can, you know, can we do this? And I said, yes, and just worked really hard for about two years. Right. Oh, wow. Do you have a sense of the culture catching up to you in a way, like this nexus with art and science and, uh, you know, stem cells and there was that incredibly popular show sweet tooth on netflix and this idea of hybrid beings and you've been there creating this phenomenal art for decades now do you have you come to terms with your role in in the culture in that way yeah i mean that is interesting i did i did make a work in 2003 for the venice biennale which spoke about the idea of growing human organs in other species, which is you know transplantation, and at the time it, it seemed like science fiction, like this is crazy. Um, but just last year we had the first um, human pig 
chimera grown to to a kind of embryonic stage, which is kind of extraordinary. And so these things have come to pass. But but my work isn't about um, you know being an apologist for for science and you know or um, you know or, or even a cautionary tale against science. Um, my work is a kind of um, ethical kind of meditation on you know how we treat the nature that we change around us. You know what are our, our responsibilities to to um, to the other inhabitants of the planet that we share this amazing place with mm. you know what is our duty of care um I, yeah often people ask me what do you think will happen in the future with this and this technology and i say i don't know i mean how would i know um i mean i just i'm just interested in discussing the ideas around how we use this technology with the community the, the response that people have to your work is quite um emotional and extraordinary at times what role does empathy play in the creation of what you do and in what you hope to kind of, um, I guess, the feeling that you hope to create in people who see your work? Um, yeah, that's right. Empathy is a huge part of the work. And um, I think one of the dynamics in, in most of the sculptures is that people, when they see them, they're kind of pushed away and they think, oh, that's unknown to me. It's a bit strange. I don't like it because I don't, I don't sort of, I'm not familiar with it. So, and then they're pulled in because they um, empathise, because they see something that they uh, uh, feel is admirable. They see a relationship that they would like to have, one of care perhaps, and they're pulled back in. And, and it's this dynamic of being um, sort of pushed out, pulled in, that allows people to have the space for themselves to question well, what, what do I actually believe here? You know, I have a choice um, rather than just being always kind of told what to think, um, as as we are in in um, in other in other ways, like like in the in like in yeah, sort of in spaces that um I don't know, much more force fed, I suppose. I don't mean to be coarse here, but how do you master a a convincing orifice. Orifices, I feel like, are a big part of your work. They're yes. pulsing. They're, <laughs> you know, uh, how how do you how do you display that? How do you get? I don't mean to say get inside an orifice, but how? What role do orifices play in your work? Do you think? A huge, huge part. Mm -hmm. And it is amazing how many people are um, find them abhorrent and you know kind of can't look at them. Um, but we've all emerged from an orifice you know like if it like literally if it was up to me um every birthday card would have a vagina on it <laughs> because we that's that's what birth is you know we emerge unless we're taken out by cesarean section we emerge from a vagina that's the point um and it's it's like a miracle um that anything gets born and um yeah orifices are really kind of beautiful and amazing spaces. They are these spaces of transition from the outside and the inside. They can be very sensual. They can be very beautiful. Um, and they're absolutely also essential um, because that's where the um, influence, like um, sort of the, the stuff that we discard comes out of and the stuff that, so to, I'm, well, I've had children, so I'm very, very, very familiar with orifices. <laughs> <laughs> so theirs and mine. <laughs> so, 
yeah, so to me, they're just a part of life. Mm. Um, Is and it... I want them in the work, I suppose. Uh, yeah. What's your approach, if you have one, towards cuteness and modern ideas of cuteness? Do you find cuteness repellent or are you attracted to it in any way or are you sus on it? Yeah, that's that's interesting you say that. Um, it's, yeah, I could make my work either really, really uh, violently horrific quite easily um, and I could make it incredibly cute and very um, kind of consumable. Um, but I try to avoid those because they're both the kind of extremes that, say, a place like Hollywood indulges in or very commercial parts of the world um, sort of exploit. I try and walk that line that's that's kind kind of beautiful but unknown, and and that's the point because um, it, it's my work's about diversity and and kind of walking that um, that path from kind of aversion to warmth, like opening your heart up to something that normally you wouldn't. Like normally you'd be quite scared or averse, but but my work is that is kind of gives you that opportunity to think. Well, can I can I embrace this difference? And to a lot of people's credit, they can. Mm. And and this is one of the few opportunities that you can do it in. Um, it in in the rest of our lives, we're we're scared to hell of difference. We can't have refugees come here. We can't. You know, we we don't. We we close our borders. We're scared of. Um, we're scared of intruders, we're scared. But actually, um, we live, those kinds of ways of being suited us when we lived in tiny villages and, and, a, and a foreigner might, might be dangerous. But now we live in communities that are full of diversity and, and, that, and those attitudes don't make sense anymore. And in fact, they are dangerous in, in themselves. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, my, my work kind of meditates on that as well. Like, um, can we um, can we care for uh, for others that are not like ourselves, and can we love them? Yeah, well, I don't think it can be overstated how important this exhibition and your work is to the rejuvenation of Melbourne and its creative spirit uh, as we end this year and come out of what we've been through. So, thank you. A miracle constantly repeated is you can catch it at the top of Flinders Street Station. It's open from 11am till 9pm daily and is on till June. Is that right? Yes, yes. It's um, it's going to be great to have it up for so long, yeah. Excellent. To get tickets, head to rising.melbourne. Patricia Piccinini, thanks very much. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I had a doctor's appointment yesterday and generally when I have an appointment, I will give myself a buffer of 30 minutes until I'm actually seen. Do you guys? Oh, you're good. I think just because it was always so frustrating for me every time I'd go and I'd have to wait. And so now I've just got a mindset. It's like, you're going to wait 30 minutes after your appointment time? Oh, I thought you meant you got there 30 minutes early. Oh, no, sorry. No, no, no. So I got there on time, but I expect to be seen 30 minutes after my scheduled appointment. Just. Yeah, from, from experience. Uh, anyway, yesterday I had to wait 45 minutes. I'm glad I had that expectation to wait half an hour. Otherwise, I would have lost my mind. Mm. Um, but anyway, I, I went in, it was fine. Uh, and then I went to go out and uh, the, the doctor is part of a, a long line of shops. Uh, and the car park's always quite busy. And I, I went to leave and I was 
blocked in. Someone had just not even parked in a, par- a car spot or anything like that, just blocked me. The other two cars next to me could could get out, but I couldn't. And I just, I was like, I've I've waited 45 minutes. I have, I think my patience is done. Now, what would you do, before I tell you what I did, what would you do in that situation? Was the person sitting in the car that just parked behind you? No hazards. They just parked. Just parked. In the middle of the street. In the well, it was a car park, so but oh. the, but they just blocked me in. So like I assume they were going to run in. But generally if that happens, like you said, like either someone's in the car or the car's running or the hazards are on or something to let you know that they won't be long. But there was no one in the car. And yeah, so what would you do? Would you I mean, so if I had nothing on sometimes, and depending on my mood, I might just wait. But I, I wasn't in the mood for waiting yesterday. Key the I mean, car. If you're prepared to key the car. <laughs> yeah. like, well, like in the doctor's waiting room, sometimes it's like well, I've waited forty-five minutes, and now I'm like deep into this magazine or this book. Yeah. And then when it's called, it's like oh. I want to know who Kylie and I dated in two thousand and three. Yeah, please. Yeah, I'm on the edge of my seat here. But the uh, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, there's. If you're oh. in a car park, isn't there a management you can go to? But no. Hey, hey. Oh, of no. course not. I mean, sorry, I, that, that, I mean, that makes me so. I'd be so angry. I'd be so angry if I was you. That, was that particular sequence of events makes me angry for you. Yeah, and I think I was pretty patient up until then, and then I just thought, get stuffed. So I have just honked my horn for about ten seconds, just so it was just this one loud honk, and then I sat there because I think if you have double parked, you would be alert to someone honking or something uh, and nothing. Just the confidence of the person to pull up and just park. I, I can't even who get around that. Were you just to, honking to out who, your anguish? Yeah, because like my my car was parked right outside the, all the shops. There is a oh. there is a row of ten shops. So I'm assuming the person is inside one of those oh, shops. So cool. you're honking like, I'm come honking, on, get like, out here, get out, yeah. and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just been looking forward to the walk of shame from the shop to the car. Yes. Some, someone who pulls up behind a row of cars and just parks. With that kind of confidence, it does Doesn't not feel shame. Feel yeah, shame. right. So did you? Did they come out? Well, I honked once and, like I said, it was about 10 seconds, nothing. So I just sat there and I breathed and then I did it again. I thought, stuff it. So I did it again. Multiple people came out but not the driver, right? People were coming out to see what was happening. Uh, and then a woman came out and she was parked next to me and she's like, hey, um, I'll move my car and then you can get yours out. And, I mean, I could have but it would have been a 10-point turn. Like it was still so tired. But I, I was appreciative. I said... Thank you. Um, so she went to move her car out and she's moved it out. And then the owner of the person that was blocking me in has come out, opened the door, saw her move and went, oh, I don't need to move now because I could get out. And he went to walk away. No. So I have just honked my horn again and I just did not stop. And he quickly ran, jumped in the car and moved his car. Did and he look ashamed? No, nothing. Yeah, of course he didn't. No, absolutely. No I, remorse. I'm not, no to ask, I'm not allowed to ask what kind of car it is, am I? You know, it looked like a like um, a car that a courier would drive. Oh. So maybe he was just. So was it a courier car? There or was not? no sticker on it, but it looked like it could, I guess, like a panel van could mm. could have stuff in the back. Um, but yeah, because I was looking at this driver honking my horn, waiting for him to turn around so I could give him, a, you know, a piece of my mind. Uh, but didn't look. Just jumped in the car, moved it, and then I got out. So uh, yeah, I. I Thankfully, didn't have to wait too long. Wasn't in a rush, though. Absolutely, I, I don't know how long I would have waited if I hadn't honked the horn. That's mm. so interesting. I once, um, I used to work on Greville Street 
And so that area, Daniel, you live around there. Mm. You know how hard the parking is, right? Oh, especially now. Yeah. So, like, the parking was atrocious. And um, when I couldn't get public transport, I'd have to drive. I moved to kind of a place where it was difficult for me not to drive some days. And it was just, like, 15 minutes. I was constantly moving my car all day. And then someone I worked with oh. was like, oh, there's, like, a few parks that are kind of seem attached to some buildings, but it was difficult to know whether they were part of these flats that were there or not. And there was a few apartment buildings. And she said, there often seems to be spare parks around these apartments. And she goes, I've just taken to to parking in these apartments, in parks. And I was like, you can't do that. You can't just go in and park in someone's spot. But she said, no, but they're really empty and no one's ever there. And yeah. I've watched it. You should give it a go one day. And so one day I was desperate. I went, I'm going to give it a go. And I did it. And and nothing. There was there was just not many cars around, and I was like, great, I think I'm going to get away with this. Um, so I'll just park here until maybe I get a note from someone saying, please don't park in here. Yeah. Um, but then one day I came out, and clearly someone had seen maybe seen my car on multiple occasions, and was like, I'm not even going to note you. I'm just going to park you in. And so they just parked their van behind my car, and it was. The afternoon, I thought, okay, I'm going to leave this for a while. I've done the wrong thing. I can't sit in my car and honk the horn. I've done the wrong thing. So I left it for a while. actually went and had like a drink somewhere and came back or a coffee. I can't remember what it was after work. Came back and that was – and I was like, oh, I see. This is a – this is a statement. Yeah, it's a standoff. And so I went, oh, well, suck it up. Caught the train home. Oh, did Um, you? Yeah, caught the train. Just left my car there. Because I didn't know what. I was too scared. What was I going to do? I had no right to have my car there. I should never have parked there in the first place. (gasps) And it was just a clear statement. The person had parked their van immediately behind my car. Yeah. Like there was no, and it hadn't moved for hours. So I'm like, this is, Mm -hmm. this isn't someone running into the building. They've seen me doing this over a course of a couple of weeks and have gone, you're a shithead. Yeah. And fair enough. <laughs> and But then I got really scared because I thought, what if they're what if they're waiting for me? Because they're watching you from a window right. or something. Yeah. And I got really freaked out. So then I made Andrew <laughs> drive me back at midnight. I said, let's just wait to the middle of the night because mm. they're surely they're going to have moved their car. They'll have given up. They'll have, they'll have won whatever yeah. little war they're playing here. <laughs> and so then, then he drove me back at midnight and I like snuck into this car park and the person had moved their car oh, and wow. I got my car out of there and I learned my lesson. <laughs> I'm just in awe. That's dramatic. That's like it. heroin of passive aggression. Yeah. <laughs> Triple R. David Hunt is a best-selling author whose debut, Girth, the Unauthorised History of Australia, won the 2014 Indie Award for Nonfiction and its sequel, True Gert, was shortlisted for Audiobook of the Year at the 2017 Australian Book Industry Awards. Now he's released the third volume, Gert Nation, out via Black Ink. And to tell us about it, the writer and historian joins us now. David, welcome back to Breakfasters. G'day, Breakfasters. How are you? We're excellent. And excellent. Uh, we're wondering when you began uh, this all those years ago, did you sense you had multiple Gerts in you? <laughs> Well, I'm a man of great girth, uh, so there are perhaps many girths already inside me. Um, no, look, I just decided to take it organically. Girt was the first time I'd ever tried to write a book. Um, I didn't know whether it would sink or sw- swim. Uh, it swam, and so I've just sort of kept on going desperate to avoid going back to work in an office with a suit. <laughs> uh, how did you settle on Alfred Deakin as the through line for this third instalment? Well, look, he's there at sort of 
just about every great moment of Australian history leading up to Federation and thereafter. And so he's somebody that you can hang a lot of the storyline off. I mean, if you think of modern Australia today, Deacon was more than anybody else, I think, responsible for many of the democratic structures and institutions we have in place, uh, the social security net. But also he's just such a crazy cat. Um, he he spoke to dead people on a regular basis. He was a spirit medium. He was the president of the Victorian Association of Progressive Spiritualists. Uh, and he took political advice on how to run Australia uh, from the dead. So his first political advisor, Victorian Premier Richard Heels, 17 years in the coffin before he started giving Deacon political advice. So, um, you know, we've got a lot to thank the dead for in making Australia a better place to live. That's right. <laughs> uh, what about Melbourne being the city of literature? Can, can you yeah. shed any light on the role of books in this city, especially as we open back up? Yeah, look, it's not just the city of literature in Australia, it's the city of literature in the world. Um, a, a British visiting British journalist referred to Australia as the land of newspapers and said that Australians read 10 times as many newspapers as anywhere else. But Victoria had uh, mechanics institutes, schools of the arts. It had over 1,100 of them where people would come to borrow books, they'd come to read, they'd come to attend lectures. And in Victoria alone, it had one and a half times as many of these mechanics institutes as Great Britain, which came up with the idea. So... Victoria was also the first place in Australia to perfect the modern public education system with its uh, secular compulsory attendance um, and, and free and education levels in Victoria were the highest in the world and, uh, and reading was, was critically important to that. Yeah. Uh, with a book like this, it's almost two books. You've got the book and then you've got the footnotes. How do you approach the footnotes? Because half the book is really you know, witticisms around extra information? Uh, well, look, the footnotes give me a chance to riff on whatever I feel like riffing on. And the idea is that I present a proper narrative history of Australia. And that's what the book is. But the footnotes really give me the pleasure of wandering down alleys and side sideways. And the favourite thing I discovered in researching this entire book was an Essendon football club trainer in the 1890s, Carl von Lebedeur, uh, who also had, and he was dodgy in all sorts of ways. He was a burglar. He, he was a race walker racing under the name of the world champion race walker. He was a complete fraud. He also um, uh, had a sideline injecting people with crushed goat dog and guinea pig testicles and to find an Essendon football trainer in the 1890s mm. who's there injecting foreign substances into people uh, was a sheer joy. Yes. You must have a unique relationship with your editor, uh, I guess. Uh, they, 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 how, how does that work? Are they ever coming in and going, just too many footnotes? We're just interesting but oh. move along. <laughs> Uh, look, the, the good thing about footnotes is if you don't want to read them, you don't have to. Yeah. Uh, but no, look, I've got I've got an interesting relationship with two editors because <laughs> the publishing house that I worked with didn't quite know how to to to, to cope with me at first, and so they had a a committee of two um, to decide whether things were were funny or or, or not. Um, so I've stuck with that sort of two editor um, approach, and look, you know, it's uh, it's worked well. So. Uh, uh, 
they they do keep me on the straight and narrow. They do say, nah, that's just not working. But the edits tend to be, you're getting too carried away with this main subject in the in, in, in the book. You could probably spend a little bit less time writing about the Australian Constitution. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you stop getting carried away? I mean, I read a two-volume book about the life of Dr. L.L. Smith. You know, went to over oh, 800, did you? 800 pages or something. Wow. And, uh, you know, he cracks a mention in the book and it, you yeah, condense yeah. him to, you know, a page or so. <laughs> how, do you, how do you know when to move on and... Well, I, I felt like staying a bit longer with uh, Pound Smith, as he was known for his many, many money-spinning interests, just because he's such a fascinating character. You know, he's the Dr. Jeffrey Edelston of the the 19th century. He's a <laughs> medical spiv, uh, his finger in every pie. And the scene where he's on stage um, letting himself get bitten by snakes and having uh, anti-venom given to him whilst he, he drinks vast quantities of brandy and vomits on stage, uh, he'd do anything for a quid. <laughs> uh, and so, um, but look, that, that was like a, a side story to how um, alternative medicine and how medicine was really filled with charlatans at the back end of the, the 19th century, how it wasn't a science, it was more of a, a, a money-spinning art. Um, and... Uh, he he filled he fulfilled that place in the narrative, but you could write eight hundred pages about him because he was just such a, mm. a weird guy. And over three volumes, do you get feedback on how to deal with the uh, you know the the horror of settlement mm. and you know the yeah. the politics around this you know short by comparison two hundred or so year history? Yeah, uh, yeah. Look, um, one of the things that I. I pride myself on is not pulling any punches. Um, and so this, my histories are not the Alan Tudge history. They are a history that is unvarnished. And so I do write about uh, indigenous dispossession. I do write about um, uh, the white Australia policy, endemic racism that, that, that made Australia the most inward looking nation in the world after its formation. And also in this book, which was a pleasure to do, I got to write two chapters about women and the evolution of women's rights and how that fed into Australian nationhood. And the most harrowing section of this book uh, was a section called Hashtag Me Too 1886, which, which is about a, 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 a gang rape that took place in Sydney that actually galvanised women across Australia to campaign for a greater say in the criminal justice system and that spread into a greater uh, a campaign for women to have the vote because women knew uh, from this particular event that they were at such a structural disadvantage that the only way that they could have a say uh, was, was at the ballot box. So that was instrumental in transforming Australian views of, of women and women's rights, that one event, but, but quite a harrowing thing to write about. There's been some commentary around the effects of our different histories state by state and how that's uh, had a ripple effect <laughs> even now dealing with the pandemic. Can you Absolutely. shed any light on that? Yeah, look, I mean, all of the colonies when they were coming together as Australia distrusted each other. And New South Wales and Victoria, let's be frank, hated each other's guts. Um, Sir Henry Parks, the Premier of New South Wales, knew that his state didn't have the wealth, the population or, or the kudos of Victoria after the gold rushes. 
But he regarded New South Wales as the premier colony and wanted Australia to hang off it. So he decided to get in early in, in 1887 by introducing legislation to rename New South Wales Australia. So <laughs> when Federation happened, everybody else would have to jump on board the New South Wales train. It didn't pass. And a Victorian politician robustly replied, no, look, why don't you call yourself Convictoria? Because that's what you all are. <laughs> uh, so, so a lot of this book is actually, it's predominantly set in Melbourne and Victoria, this book, but there's an awful lot of the tensions with New South Wales and the one-upmanship up that they were each trying to get uh, to climb to the, the top of the pile when Australia became a nation. Did you get to have a real book launch? Uh, I, I got to have a, uh, a virtual Melbourne book launch um, kindly put on by, by readings um, uh, via Zoom. But tonight uh, I have a pub booked because bookshops are still a little bit gun shy about allowing crowds of, of the uh, unwashed um, in, into their hallowed halls. So um, hiring a pub tonight and, and having some people round for a drink and a, and a proper launch. All right. Well, congratulations. It's the third instalment, Girt Nation, The Unauthorised History of Australia, Volume 3. It's out via Black Ink, and we've been uh, fortunate to speak with David Hunt. Thanks very much, David. Thank you very much, Daniel. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>